along to it. Well, you can't hear it because it's blue jeans. Oh, okay. Hi. I can't hear shit, and I didn't get as much of a signal as normal. So this is episode 27 of High Fantasy, Marvel's Broken Jars podcast network, and uh, we're going to redo an episode that was lost to terrible recording programs and corruption. Yes, and we're sorry it's been so long. You know, holidays, Thanksgiving, sickness... I think I called off at least once for being sick, and I'm sick again, so if I get really loopy, it's because of the cough meds. Sorry, guys. Yeah, Makes for entertaining so... podcasting, so don't worry. But it led to us not recording for the entirety of November, and that might have at least helped Colin. So what did you manage to accomplish in November, Colin? I finished my NaNoWriMo. Does that mean you actually reached the end of the story, or did you just hit 50,000 words? 50,000. I'm okay. probably about two-thirds, three-quarters through. Jesus okay. Christ, I intended man. it for it to be around, around fifty thousand, sixty thousand words when I planned the story. So I'm happy with that. Of course, the story ran away from me entirely. So, like all these building blocks I was planning on putting in the early part, kind of got dropped when events started happening, and my characters didn't have time to go do the things I wanted them to do. You do know it's possible to plan a story, right? Yeah, I had plans and, and make it like stick to that plan. No. <laughs> that never happens for me. Okay. So, um I had the wrote... arcs for each section planned. But then the events of the section before kind of superseded the next section and I just had to keep going with it. Interesting. Interesting. Yes, very interesting. We can talk about <laughs> that later because it's part of the process. Yeah. So, Jacob, did you get anything done? Um I've got some done, not nearly as much as I would have wanted to do in the since the six or eight weeks we've been off. Um actually had a very, very terrible bout of depression I had to, to fight through with my therapist and my wife and everything else. So um yeah, there wasn't as much writing getting done, but I'm getting back to it. Uh in the last probably two weeks I've done about five thousand words, so it's pretty good. Um but for the Eight, six weeks before that, probably nothing, so. Hmm. So, I don't remember when I started working on this story, but I, a few weeks ago, I got really caught up with the idea of Victorian-era London. So, I'm doing something with it, like basically. Two just now. Two months? Okay, I, I can't remember. And, well, I started, like, being able to actually put things down in, like, the world-building section, and now I've gotten to the... Plotting, which is always where I hit roadblocks <laughs> and where I get stalled. So that's literally what happened. It's like I started plotting out the opening and then I hit my first roadblock and it's like, I need to figure this out. That's where, where I, I get now. random messages through Discord about Colin, help me. Yes. And that is, uh, that is a great segue into our podcast topic. The <laughs> yeah. process of how you write. So yeah. Director Alex, when you get struck by a story or an idea... How do you start building this story idea that might eventually lead into a book? So for this one, I basically just took all of the aesthetic things that I really like about Victorian era stuff, which is like the architecture, the fashion, just like the general amount of despair 
that it always seems to have. And like, that's the time when like horror stories started popping up, like the Penny Dreadfuls and like the Frankenstein Dracula. It's like that kind of seems to influence the setting in general. Well, Dracula was and funded by the white court. So, you know, <laughs> of course, horror, right? Is Dresden just real life at this point? <laughs> Maybe it is in Broken Jars. I really liked just all of the various aesthetic tastes for it. It's like, how do I force this to be relevant? And I cannibalized another story idea I had from a few years ago, of which I had like a a woman uh, just getting released out of uh, an insane asylum, actually. Oh, that'd be really good in Victoria, London, yeah. Right, because Bedlam, Bedlam was a great historical, actually it was terrible, but it was like, it was the insane asylum and it became so notorious, Bedlam became its own adjective Mm -hmm. and just wanted to to deal with that. So you bring up Bedlam as an adjective, Um, I'm a big Oklahoma State fan. Anytime Oklahoma State and OU get together, it is known throughout the country as Bedlam. Oh, well... Not known to me. All I knew was the asylum. Yes, but still. Because I, mean, I don't give a shit about football. <laughs> well, it's football, wrestling, whatever. But still, yeah. I mean, Bedlam is near. The term is near and dear to my heart. <laughs> I do believe you threatened to push a very big, important Broken Jars meeting because of Bedlam. I did. I did. Um, <laughs> no, no, I didn't threaten to push it. I said, I won't meet because of Bedlam. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Alex, okay. have you played Dishonored yet? No. You should really. play it because it does, like, it's not England, obviously, but it does, like, a phenomenal job of creating this fictional, industrial, Victorian era kind of city and culture. And Yeah, maybe. And I've, I've mostly what I've been doing is trying to consume a lot of British television so I can think of British accents, which has been weird. But I'm just trying to, like, find decent victorian stuff and i haven't found much because <laughs> like okay the show penny dreadful it was kind of good but it was rough and then they just lost it and it's Pro- like probably what you need to do is actually if you're looking for accents is watch british sitcoms like it crowd where they're not watching. trying to do anything they're just there and being british <laughs> you know? well there's uh luther is something i just finished watching it was very good in the beginning and then i'm not sure what they're doing with it after but um they're just like you know people who grew up there and all their crazy accents it's like okay that person's accent is definitely different than hers but where are they from and why because like every town that's 15 minutes away from each other is going to have a different accent there was this high fantasy reviews tv shows apparently i don't know i've been i've been enjoying all of it and I don't know what I'm doing but I'm kind of just accepting that like I need to figure out this much and not all the rest of it and I'm just going to try to run with it like I don't know if it's if I'm going to call it England or if I'm going to make fake England or whatever England? I don't know it, England. 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 <laughs> well, I'm so, going to go with the name Albion because that's like a historical thing it's just it's also everywhere yeah so, Colin, when you when you get that bite for a new story, what do you do? It varies. Sometimes I'll just start writing the opening scene, which inevitably does not become the opening scene because that's not a good way to start a story. But other times, like, 
for me, a lot of times a story comes as either a character or like an idea that's a plot point for later on. So I'll sit back and figure out who's involved in it. And usually the setting kind of comes with the idea to begin with. Okay. I actually but I do a lot of because uh, writing out. Actually, I'm a hard time. I'm, I'm going to have a hard time following both of you. Let's step back. <laughs> Let's go back to that spark of inspiration. How do stories okay. come to you? Randomly. Yeah. Yes, but, but they like, just pop into my head and I'll go right down. Like, I but, carry but, but, me do, at all do you times see it sure. as like, how do you see that story? Like, when it pops in your head for the first time, it's like, it, it's like, Colin's walking to the sidewalk going, yeah, sometimes that happens. Yeah. Sometimes it'll be like, one of my stories I was reading, or I was playing Witcher 3 and doing a vampire hunt, and I'm like, I haven't read a good Witcher, I haven't read a good vampire story in a long time. I want to write one. So then I kind of set about creating a vampire story. I mean, at this point, I feel like I have the skill that I can force the story out of whatever I want it to be, which is kind of nice because I'm not just like a slave to whatever my original idea is. But I usually just run with the original idea, which is usually a character in an uncomfortable situation somewhere in a setting. <laughs> okay. And I just take that and I go. Right. So okay. I have so my do ideas. Come from like, what I want to read. What you want. Okay, interesting. Yeah, it's like I'm frustrated times... I can't find the, the right, the perfect TV show. I'm going to write a book. <laughs> yeah, a lot of times for me, I'm just like, I just think of a really interesting concept. And I'm like, that could be a good book. And then I go from there. <laughs> yeah, I think one of mine was just like, I think you were talking about the Golden Girl story. Um,. And I was just thinking of random things along those, like if this story in this setting, and I think I had Lord of the Flies in space. And I'm like, that could be fun. Oh, great, 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 yeah. I haven't done much with it, but it's an idea I've started. Uh, like, one of, like one of the stories I'm writing, I've been writing for years now, um, it actually came from, I was watching an episode of Friends, and someone said, we have reservations at eight and I'm like, Hmm, that sounds like a really good title for a book. So I started writing a romance novel <laughs> and it won't yeah, be a novel. If I'm lucky, it'll yes. be 20,000 words, but I'm <laughs> getting close to the end of it. Thankfully. The story I did for the Sanderson class where I originally met Alex, I think it was probably Reddit, but it was a, sci-fi photo of this farmer and there's this giant like war of the world style alien kind of thing kind of like leaning over to him communicating with him and i'm like that's a really cool photo drawing picture but then i wanted to know what was going on there so i just sort of created the backstory of the photo and went off that it's a cool picture and i wanted to know why yeah i'm noticing a lot of the inspirations are just weird visual stuff yeah, I can see that. Lovecraft must have had some weird dreams. Yeah. Well, opium was legal at that point. <laughs> yes, but he didn't even drink alcohol, so I don't know if he... I don't know if he would have done opium. Who's to say? <laughs> he, he wasn't Poe. <laughs> that is true. Lovecraft was not Poe. 
He didn't get drunk and die in an alley. So, so all right, let, let's talk about the actual like process. Putting. Well, we have an idea, and what do you do to flesh it out? You get like the starting you know, spark putting, of it. Putting pen to paper, so to speak. Even though most of us actually don't work with real paper anymore, which is so sad. But it's just that before you can actually trace. start writing the story, you need to flesh it out. You need to do whatever outlining you're gonna do, which could be nothing. But do you guys have a process of outlining it? See, I disagree completely with you. Because any Why? good story what? can be put into any setting. Sure, sort of. Not unless it's important. I don't know. I feel like the setting kind of contributes a key factor of how something would develop. Yes, but so... <sighs> like, take Dresden. As much as he made it work in the modern setting, he had to invent an entire thing just to make sure modern technology didn't make Dresden job irrelevant. Right, but you it's like most people know, uh, I've written a space western and mm -hmm. there's so much stuff that doesn't it still communicates if you're writing it a western or a space western. It's just some of the the interconnecting objects change. You know, yeah, the idea of the gunslinger doesn't change, even though his bullets might be lasers instead of, you know, lead and, and gunpowder. Yeah. I mean, you can do that. You, you can have like, you can have a, a murder mystery anywhere in any setting, yeah. whoever people, that's fine. But if you have the setting be important and be critical, like it's very different to be on an island in a desert stranded and not having enough resources versus being stranded in a spaceship and threatening to die by vacuum. Thematically, they're similar, but... But yeah, like the the way that the story's going to go, what the characters have to do, yeah. those are completely different. Like your, not... your plot is going to be determined by the setting yeah. to an extent, but the it... themes and character challenges are still somewhat... Close. Right. So the setting matters as much as you make it matter, but it does matter. Does that make that made sense, yes. right? Okay. Right. So, if you want to have a character, if you want to have a stranding situation, you can set it anywhere where a person can be stranded, but how they're going to overcome that challenge is fairly dependent on the setting. Yeah. Or insert magic system or anything else yeah insert whatever tool you're they're gonna have to use that's gonna be important um like picture what <laughs> picture of dresden instead of you know having bob he had a secret wizard dark web with all the information on it would be a lot less snark yeah he wouldn't need to buy romance novels <laughs> or let bob go have orgies at dorms yeah i mean it decreases some amount of the flavor, unless you get like Forchani type flavor, which could be weird. <laughs> I don't wizard dark web. <laughs> well, um, but when you, when you're doing the outline, when you add structure to the original idea that you have, how do you do it? Like Colin, you usually do the three act structure, right? Oh, absolutely, every time. Why? Because it makes sense. I don't give a shit about it. It's hard for me to, <laughs> to think it makes sense. It's like, 
why try to split up the story by three things? I just know the beginning and the end, and I need to find the middle. Yes, yeah. but everyone... For narrative sense and satisfaction to the reader, it helps to plan that. Right. And the thing is, with three-act structures, we're so used to it when something doesn't follow it. Doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right. Even though you as the reader may not know you're not seeing the three-act structure, like, let's just feel off. Like, I mean, I have a pretty certain everything I've done could be falling into a three-act structure, and that's fine. It's not like I'm trying to avoid it. I just don't find it a useful thing to try to build off of when creating. I mean, the, what I need after like those starting ideas, I need to know the ending I'm getting to. So what I started doing with this Victorian story is I have... Like the opening premise, and I write another paper of just the end result of everything. And so now I, I need to get those two to have connections between each other and, you know, more tension, more drama, more fun, things like that. Right. And that's sort of why I fall into it, which makes me wonder if I should start writing the middle first and then create the beginning and the ending. Because the middle, I mean, that's that's my hardest part. Like I can do hard. thirty thousand here and thirty thousand here, but nothing in the middle. <laughs> what frustrates me with the middle is I always feel like I'm writing to avoid reaching the conclusion at this point. That's possible. I mean, obviously, you can have the opposite problem of skipping over too much, trying True. to rush towards the end. <clears throat> but Both like, I know I'm not ready for the end. So then my characters just have to start veering off, and then that's where things fall apart. Yeah, that's why you should plan things. That your characters should have GPS coordinates Tell to follow. Tell that to George R. R. Martin. I would, if I ever like, actually spoke to him. Yeah, I'm pretty I sure would. he's been oh. told that a lot. Don't lie. Or he like, should just edit. Like, hey, I mean, you can George. do right. all sorts of things. I just think that like, if you're going to do that, you need to have a very sharp editing knife to cut things out, and he didn't. I think he's a victim of success. Yes, that is possible too. Like, okay, so you've done really well so far, and we're too afraid to tell you when to stop something. Yeah, the thing that happened to Matt Shawalan and George Lucas, probably. And once oh. you get too successful, people won't well, tell you no, and then all I'll of your mistakes the will be published. I'll dispute the George Lucas to an extent. Well, I, don't know. I think Lucas is. He had the right people around him when he started, and now that he doesn't have those people anymore, the problems yeah. that he had to start. Are... Well, I and think those right people's problem people is he stopped no. making movies. Not that he stopped <laughs> making Star Wars movies, he just stopped making movies. He stopped growing as a film creator. Yeah. Is this isn't yeah. Star Wars podcast? Not yet. No, not yet. It is Dresden <laughs> podcast, though. Apparently. Okay. So, when you are trying to sit down and actually write however you do it, what kind of preparations do you do for that? Like um, music, or do you have to be in a specific room? Do you have a ritual? Do you eschew all rituals for it? Uh, do you have a special you... shirt to wear? Um <laughs> Actually, I have a lot to say because I actually used to have a very specific ritual, but now I've tried to pull away from that. 
so I used to do a lot of writing handwritten um, because I didn't have a computer or whatever. Um, but handwritten at in the cafeteria at work. And, you know, when I was doing that, it would actually throw me off if someone ate at my table. Because I would always, like... Fuck off, I'm busy. Well, people... I would always go down at a specific time, and this one specific table in the back corner that was, like, 280 degrees, wrapped by windows, like, was always open. But if that table wasn't open, it would mess me up. So it was like, you know what? You can't do this. So, um... I try to think about what I'm going to write for at least 24 hours before I write it. Like I want, I want my, I want my subconscious to be able to marinate on it until I actually start writing. Interesting. And now you just do it anywhere you want. Uh, Pretty much. Are you but using I, but word I processors? Do, uh, yeah, just generally word, um, because I work on a lot of different mediums. Sometimes I'm doing, sometimes I'm literally writing on my phone. Sometimes I'm doing other things. So I use, uh, a, a, you know, uh, word, the word online cloud thing. Um, Google Docs. Go, yeah. Google docs is another one, but so I want to be able to do what I want when I want to do it. So I really wish I had tools available to me like a Scrivener or whatever, but, um, I don't have those and I'll probably never be able to have those until I, you know, sell a few books and start doing this full time, which will never happen. Thank you. TJ (laughs) from jellyfish (laughs) ever happen. (laughs) So, I mean, there are benefits to having a ritual. Like if, for example, you have an office in like, whatever place it's a dedicated space for writing you sit down you basically fire up all whatever modes you need to and you just go and you have like this thing that you program yourself condition yourself to to go this is when i write and and this is when everything's going to be productive right but if if that ritual is disrupted like a cat walks into your office or something and then everything's thrown off then you can't do be productive yeah so there's there's good and bads on it yeah i mean the ritual is great i love I mean, I love the ritual. I am all about it. I love it. I mean, it's so much fun to just like, because <laughs> it gets you in the perfect headspace. You're like, okay, I'm going to do this. Then we do this. Then I have X amount of time to just focus. And you put on your headphones, listen to whatever music you want to, and start just writing up a tear. You know, you do like 2,000 words in an hour. And you're just like, yeah, this is great. But you just, unless you have a very just super stable workplace, you can't bank on the ritual. Yeah. If you and, don't write at work. <laughs> when your boss can run in and say, like, why haven't you done this thing for that meeting? How dare you? Yeah, not everyone has Sanderson's old job of, you know, nighttime hotel. Right. Well, yeah. that's the same thing with, like, Ernest Klein. He was, like, late-night IT, and all he had to make sure was the servers didn't go down. So he was there for, like, eight hours with nothing to do for weeks on end. Yeah, and so 
you know, I've got I've got a real job. I'm an industrial engineer for a <laughs> Fortune 500 company. So, and I have a wife and all that other stuff. So my writing time is very limited. So, I, I used to at work. So what what I what I I used, actually used to be very ritualistic, but like I was saying earlier, like I had to learn to get away from that just because I if I didn't I couldn't write. And yeah. so if I went two weeks without writing, I just get like super pent up or I was like like being really like passive aggressive and weird. So <laughs> like I had all this like stuff built up in here where I was just like lashing out at people. I mean, if your lifestyle isn't conducive to you having something that's as delicate as a ritual, then you either work around it or you don't work. So it's, it, unfortunately, it is just kind of that black and white. Either you do it or you don't. And you kind of have to get through it. But when you you do get the time to sit down and write, or I don't know, maybe you're a weird person, you like to stand. But <laughs> I'm getting my standing desk. Hemingway do that? Yes, he did. But I'm getting okay. my standing desk next week. Hemingway probably wrote with his dick. <laughs> Just slapping all over the the, the typewriters. Like, <laughs> it is hemming. It is hemming away. It's gotta hurt, doesn't it? <laughs> okay. I uh, found ritual. Okay, hello. Wow, Are you listening else. music that has words in it? Oh, yeah, but see, because if throw you... on some, no, I couldn't even throw on like Tchaikovsky or something. I get too excited. It, okay, it really depends thing. on the scene for me. Um, but I don't want to cut any. Like, I literally cut off for a second, so I'm trying to get back in the conversation, but I don't want to cut any conversation off. Is uh, Benadryl kicking in? Yes. <laughs> okay, so um, I really, I mean, words with music really doesn't do much to me in general, unless it's like like rap, where it's more, you know, spoken word kind of thing. But uh, there are definitely certain musics I listen to at certain times for different moods. Um, for happy moods, especially, I really like Bleachers, their first album. Um, they have this one song, uh, it's Like the River Runs, and it, just the beat of that song and the timbre of the, 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 the words, it's just, like, if you want to just be happy while writing, just listen to that song over and over again, you can punch out so many words. Part for me is... Music in particular, for some weird reason, like tends to associate itself with things. Yes. So various songs will remind me of books, stories, games, whatnot. And if I listen to music, the idea of the story I'm writing in my head starts to get messed up. Which could be a benefit if you're wanting to emulate something. But otherwise, I don't know. Um, so, I mean, if you're trying to work with words and you are listening to something with words it can distract you and interrupt you and so if you go towards something that doesn't have words or lyrics 
then it might be like just like a cushion to whatever else is happening around you. Like, but I'm like, weird, but, but I can't stand I play, listening to I the sound of my own typing. Piano, so I sometimes get distracted of listening to something and thinking about playing it. But the also what what ends up happening is you start remembering you wrote this really great sentence while listening to this music. So you yeah. might start. I, I've definitely fallen into it myself, where like, like oh, I did really great listening to this one music, and my writing suffered because I was starting to, un, you know, starting to emulate what I was listening to, um, in my writing, even though they're two completely different stories. Hmm. I mean, it can be really helpful because it's like mood music. So that you can like emulate whatever mood that music puts you in to try to force it onto your characters or just like keep you upbeat and going or distracted from like, I don't know, you have a crying baby in the background and you don't want to listen to it. Listen to something better and that'll help you and things like that. But if you, yeah, I don't know. I find like lyrics can be very distracting. Yeah. I mean, in terms of, my writing um i try not to write under any influence so i try not to drink too much i you know if i'm gonna write a lot i'm just kind of myself that's the best way i can actually write writing is a lot of work i mean like it's just like having to constantly think of a new like describe whatever else is happening and going on it's constant work so I won't take anything that puts me to sleep. For example, alcohol might have a threat to do that. I just drink a ton of caffeine instead. <laughs> but like you make you jittery. I don't know that I, I I don't get jittery anymore. I drink a lot of coffee. I like coffee. Um, I can be like perfectly situated and comfortable and ready to go for like four hours straight, but I'll keep getting up to get more coffee. <laughs> Yeah, and, and part of part of that is just learning how to write. Like everyone thinks that like everything is perfect or whatever, but part of it is just putting your fingers to the keys or to you know pen to paper or whatever. And I think that's that's more important than anything else. Just what. What do you need to do to get you to actually write, you know? And a lot of it, I think, is, especially for new people, is dealing with the fact that you, you have to actually start. It's like an empty blank page is intimidating. Right. And you have to start somewhere. So if you have, like, you start in the middle of, of the, the story or something, and as long as you start get like some paragraphs on there you can keep working with it but you need to do that first bit of a hurdle and then you have something to build off of i wish colin was here right now but you can't see that well if you're watching on the youtube you can but if not um do you do any mental exercises to like help your writing i don't know anymore because i could be and i'm like not even noticing that they are because like a lot of the times Kind of like what you said of like trying to think of it beforehand. It's like the more clear it is in my head, then the easier it is for me to get down and write it. So that's one of the things that I outline so much is because then I know what I'm doing, even if I'm tired. 
but like if like I'm trying to fall asleep and I'm in that annoying stage of still being awake and I need to stop thinking, I'll just think about the stories and things will kind of flesh out somehow. Can't really cool. describe it. it. Just does. I mean, I'll admit one of my worst suits is description. I mean, that's something I don't do very well. So what I do is when I start hearing a noise, especially um, I generally have a half mile walk to work just because of where my work is. Um, so when people are walking around me, I'll start writing the scene in my head just to flush out different ideas for her, you know, the way a, a, a person's boot sounds or, you know, especially when the snow is there, like how how a boot sounds under snow versus a tennis shoe versus other things. Like there's so much I try to do a, when I'm not actually writing to actually help my writing. Yeah, I actually remember I used to do that a few years ago and I don't know why I might have stopped. But like if I was bored or just waiting for something to happen and I just watching other things happening around me, how would I describe it and trying to get the prose better? So it's not like actually writing in terms of trying to get better with it, but it's kind of practicing it in your head and you'd still probably see improvements over time. Right, but it's also like, uh, I remember when I, before I got my my current position in the building, I used to park into the other side of the building. I used to walk up to the building, you know, just because of how we got there with a certain woman who had just these god-awful boots. But they were just they just sounded like fucking Clydesdales. And it was like, how many ways can you describe a fucking Clydesdale walking down a parking lot? And I found out like seven or eight different ways to describe this. The thrunt thunderous hoof, the mighty hoof. I mean, there's so many different ways you can do it. Interesting. But Colin, do you do any like it's sort of mental exercises in order to just help out. No, I should. Okay. <laughs> God damn it. Do better. I mean, this is a fucking podcast, man. Yeah. We have really it's... high standards of quality required here at times. Like I'll just sit back and observe the world and more for content than prose. Like, see how people react to things and whatnot. Yeah, I, I mean, that's like, kind of always been kind of my issue is just the prose. I can always <laughs> see see the story in my head, but I can never write it down. Yeah, it's, it's weird how much this prose-heavy uh, avenue is so much based on vivid imagery. But um, I when I'm trying to, to actually sit down and write it, I want to get the prose in place that I, I can accept it and move on. Like if there's a bad couple of sentences and it takes me a while to figure out what's wrong with it, I won't be able to move on with it. But sometimes like if I'm writing a conversation and it, nothing it just seems right, I'll have to stop and figure out what's going on. A lot of time I have to take out something I've done and then keep going again. And that's just so that I can like let it be but not trying to make it perfect because there has to be times that you just let it suck because otherwise you'll never get anywhere. Yeah. Oh, um, 
you definitely need to be able to put your inner editor in the back room for a long time. That's really what Nano is all about. What is the, like, I forget the exact uh, tagline, but it's like, don't get it good, just get it done. Yeah, you don't, good isn't here yet. Good is, like... Like, first drafts suck. They always will. No one writes their perfect novel on draft one. I mean, I've heard some people that, like, maybe after they get to a point of being really good, they're able to just spit out a first draft and then be done. But a lot of it is that you've got, you're going to have weird pacing issues. You're, yeah. you're definitely going to have like, typos. Go listen to TJ. Because yes. he'll tell you. There's a lot of work. Editors exist for a reason. Yeah. And... They're going to take an, a scalpel to your story and tell you what's wrong with it because there's going to be something wrong with it. And it's going to be better afterwards yeah. because they're going to take out the bad parts and then all that remains is the good parts. Yeah, you're writing a story that's near and dear to your heart, but the editor is going to see what the reader sees. Yes, that's, that is important because you're only going to see what you are intending to put into it but everyone else is going to get what you actually put into it. So beta readers are going to say, what the hell happened in this paragraph? I don't understand. And you say, but isn't it perfectly obvious that like this person was saying that thing to the other person, political things and blah, 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 world's ending, blah, blah. And it's like the beta readers are going to be like, no, this doesn't make sense and you have to fix it. No one ever and told that to Stephen Erickson. <laughs> they <laughs> the should entire have. Series based everyone on needs no people. Everyone needs someone's like, this didn't make sense. And you have to fix it. Or even sometimes they might come back to you and say, hey, so I know you were trying to hint at this thing, but you kind of beat me over the head with it. Can you cut out part of that? Yes, there's always things like that. Yeah, I, that's definitely my problem when it comes to things. Like, I'm thinking I'm making these sly hints at things, and it's like, the reader catches on a lot earlier than I expect them to, and I wrote three more sentences that I needed to to get the point across. Yeah, it's something I'm usually frustrated about in anything I consume. It's like, I'm not that clever of a person, but if a surprise is supposed to be like a twist, make it actually surprising and not telegraphed. Yeah, and I definitely noticed during this last story that I was reusing ways of describing things too often. Oh, it's like the like same tagline, essentially? Like the same descriptive words. Hair was brown and like, beautiful. <laughs> this isn't Dresden. Everyone's not beautiful. Have you read Ellie Modisit? Um, no. Okay. Well, Is he, um, he does sci-fi the... because I, he, he's in like similar league as Sanderson in terms of being very prolific. And I'm pretty sure he also lives in Utah. So take that for what you will. But uh, he's written like 30 something plus books and he just like gets really focused on one word once in a while. And there was one of them. It was kind of a standalone sci-fi thing. And he used the word nihilin like 10, 20 times a page. And it means black, like dark black kind uh, yeah, of night. Um, and he abused the fuck out of it. And in, then in a completely different story, series, world, universe, he had the na main character named nihilin that had white <laughs> hair. It's like, okay, I get it. You like that um, word. In Deadhouse Gates, the second Malazan book takes place on like the desert continent. And red is a very prominent color there, like their scarves and whatnot, and they use a lot of red paint and stuff. But he uses the word ochre. Mm. For like rust brown, I should say more. And it's like 
everything starts becoming ochre for the entire book. It's just, he uses that word constantly in the story. And it's just, it's obvious. When everything is one color, you stop seeing that color. You ever put on colored glasses, and then you pull it off, and everything is the opposite color? <laughs> to be fair, it's a desert continent. There really isn't much color. Okay, but they're going to start finding yeah. a lot of differences in that shade of ochre versus the other shade of ochre, but that one has a little bit different. Yeah, they're come to the plains, yeah, like... my friend. Hmm? Come to the plains. I'll, I'll show you <laughs> different plain, different colors of desert. Yeah, when it's the only color, the shades start mattering more. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He, he, and then, I mean, I don't know how far you've gotten into Lovecraft, but he loves his non-Euclidean geometry and his Cyclopean stuff. I haven't gotten very far. I'm still working he on it. He uses some of those phrases quite a bit. One thing I'm noticing that I feel like a lot of people suffer from is the characters all feel like the same one. The point of view characters is always the yeah. same. just very interchangeable. It's always the but horrified male narrator. That's always the same age as Lovecraft was at the time of writing Pretty it. much. Yeah. Always <laughs> <laughs> huh. the middle-aged white male. It's like one thing that always... you can do before you start writing is make sure that your characters feel like people. Yeah. How do you do that? All of his narrators are always, like they always somewhat... For a lot of the short stories, not when it comes to like at the Madden Mountains of Madness or Dream Quest of Unknown Cadith, but like they often feel outside of the story. Yeah. Like I'm thinking like Pickman's Gallery and stuff. It's just the narrator finding it eventually. Hmm. They're never actually part of it. I will actually say that the one that uh, trumps that is The Tomb, which I think is the first one he ever published. Which one? The Tomb? It's a guy going crazy. Oh, right. He does do, uh, he finds ways of making the narration feel like it's falling to pieces. He did a very good job with that. I don't think yeah. it's connected to any of the other stuff that he was doing, but it was one person going does crazy gets, and you could does, tell. Is it because he gets stuck inside the tomb or something? No, he wanted to be in the tomb. He thought he was going down and like spending nights there and everything. Everyone else saw that he's just like sitting in front of it, staring at it and is hallucinating the entire thing. And then he gets locked up and people break into it and they say, oh, his name is written on this one empty casket and he's been promised that he will be buried there. It's creepy. It was great. Yeah, oh, he's good at that. Okay, this is also not a Lovecraft podcast. <laughs> I'm so sorry for that tangent. Do y'all ever okay. listen to Welcome to Night Vale? Welcome to Night Vale? No. Mm -mm. It's a podcast... About the town where everything that uh, Lovecraft talks about happens. <laughs> and it's sort of this, you know, NPR style pot, you know, radio show about what happens at this town where all these terrible things are happening. <laughs> it's, it's hilarious and really good. I did finally start watching Stranger Things just now that's well worth it i know there's a door so, column like <laughs> the podcast listeners cannot see you be like get the fuck out man uh, we, I'm no we are no longer friends <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm gonna forcibly pull us back to the topic of how do you sit down and write colin do you drink wine while writing no usually not is it because of Usually any particular I'm, reason? 
because typically I write between the hours of one and five, <laughs> okay. which usually means I'm getting home at four and cramming out as much writing as I can do. do so if you were typically writing between the hours of eight and ten, would you have done it with wine? It was the weekend. Not the week. Okay. So when when you've actually gotten everything in order and you sit down, do you have any tips on how to start on the front page? Because I mentioned it earlier, but blank pages are terrifying. terrifying and intimidating. And how do you actually start? One thing that works for me page is one. I know intricately what the opening scene will be, whether it'll stay as the opening scene, I don't know, but I don't have to question what it's going to be. And that helps. That's but. been a big part of Carolyn's problem. I he... can't find out where to start the story. That's because you started it everywhere already. I know. And I don't... None of them work. None of them make me happy. That might be a good thing. You know what? You might be reaching that state of, like, forever being unhappy with your own work. Which is better than thinking everything I write is pure gold. Yeah, it's totally better. But, uh, yeah, for the blank page one... Do you guys I mean, have any if tips? I don't know the first paragraph, I won't write it. I mean, that's probably <laughs> my biggest attribute and hindrance is if I don't know word one, I won't do it. So, I forget it. Like the first two or three thousand words are super easy. Everything else, not so much. Yeah, that yeah, definitely. I forget who said it. It might have been Sanderson in one of his lectures. But a lot of people have the problem where they start their story before the rising action. That is also true. Like, And um, you should be starting here where things start happening, not here while someone's waiting for things to happen. Yeah, starting when things are when someone is waiting is generally probably not advised yeah. because you need something excited, you need something hooked. So if you your opening paragraph is about something exciting, one, it'll probably excite the author and the reader and everything will just be a little bit easier. But you have to figure that out at some point. Yeah. Well, I just but checked my... if it helps you just start the writing process to start ahead of where you need it to be and then cut those words out later, that's also fine. Like just I cut just the checked, words later. I just checked my uh, nano story and about 700 words in... The main problem of the entire story is presented to the main character. Nice. Like, and I, well, he's a he's an, a cop in a city, and he's finishing up one case, and before he's even finished with that, someone brings him a new case. Yay! And there and he not, goes. There's no to there's be, no you know, going waiting. back on the we're a Dresden Files podcast, but <laughs> I was standing on, was next to a burning building, <laughs> but it was not my fault. And that's like, a great opening line. It's so good. It, you just get right in that story. He's missing that in the first novels. Yes. Actually, I, he hasn't I disagree. Out, yeah. he, I disagree. It, it takes a while for some of the plots to develop in the first yes. five books. I think... Well, I mean... In, uh, well, Storm... I will... I, I will... I will take great. I'll take um, brave peril out of that because that just kind of starts. Yes, that's when he started figuring out. You jump in the middle of it. I mean, even in yeah. summer night, he's jumping into like, oh, there's toads raining. Yeah, but typically still. that's a bad sign. I feel like yeah. um, 
Was that um who did uh Hitchhiker's Guide? Douglas Adams. Yeah, was that uh at the at the beginning the universe was created. It was generally agreed that it was a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, but like he takes sometimes a little while though if I, I looked mean, at where I was in Death Masks I'm like two thirds away through the story and I feel like Harry's still trying to figure it out oh, I, I, I've already Death Masks True. was not the best one really it's it doesn't feel like book, you bitch. I mean I love the Denarians and I love their introduction but like it doesn't feel like he's ever really doing anything there's no hump there that he gets to. Yeah. Are, really are you are you missing the second act? Kind of, yeah. I think with Death, Ma- Death Mask, it's like when he stops becoming a private eye and starts becoming just like a wizard. Kind of like I that, mean, though. The, the problem is, I, I think that what he did is, he kept it for a lot of it after, is there's two storylines. And you can see this in... Mm. Uh, Stormfront as well. There's two different cases that he's working on, and then they collide. But with Death Mask, they didn't collide as much, and they feel so uh, disconnected that you kind of forget. Oh yeah, that one happened in the same story as the other, which is what I think the issue is. And just like I'm on chapter 17, and it feels like Harry's still putting together the first pieces of the first thing we learn about. Yeah, like he just found his second like that duel came about on like chapter one how have we gotten 17 chapters before you had to finally figure this out but because I mean he also reasons. got his second I mean he this is not here nor there for this podcast if you like the Dresden Files please check out Dresden Files on the same network but it does have to do with when you're writing a story you you want to make sure that your action is consistent there's an ebb and a flow to it and your readers are satisfied right and that's why like everyone I, I read says skip the first three books and I'm I like, no, you, you can't do that. You have to start with Stormfront because it creates a character dressing himself. I loved um, Tor put out a list of the definitive author's order to reading Malazan, <laughs> which started off with the prequel trilogy that I'm in the middle of that isn't even finished yet that he just put on hold. But like... None of that, none of those storylines in that book would be anywhere near as interesting if you hadn't already read 10 books about these characters and now you want to know about them. Yeah, and you're Erickson, already invested at that yeah, point. And you're curious because you know who they are in the future, not in the past. Mm-hmm. But Erickson came out and said, no, you should just read them in publication order because that makes sense. You need back, well, you need backstory you're a lot of things. Dresden does the first couple books do the first are more characterization than anything. I like the first book. It's amazing. Uh, it, yes. I will fight anyone saying it's one of the worst Dresdens. I will literally fight them. I don't, yeah, I mean, I only read it like a month ago, and it's constant action. Yeah. I, it's a good story. It's also the one he was the worst at writing. Because okay, the was... writing is not great. And right. This is a process episode. But the story <laughs> is so good, and it's like, he, it's just so yeah, boom, gets... boom, boom, boom. 
And I love the. And he, he the got new... significantly better afterwards. So when you're comparing the series against itself, you can say, "Oh yeah, but like changes was better than Stormfront." Yes, I know, but but I'm... let's be honest. Not every most readers are not us when it comes to like the actual physical writing. No, most people readers just are like... like Justin, who also agrees with me. No, but okay. So a here, good story here's my problem: bad writing or average writing. So and actually, but. Butcher himself says the opposite. Like the better the execution is, the the more important part than a bad story. You can have like a very simple story and execute it perfectly, and it will sell. Yes, Hence, but I would Codex Alera. Execution is different than writing, right? Mm. The wording in Stormfront is not up to caliber to the later books. Neither is his pacing or his plotting. I would say the plotting and the pacing are fine. Now he had to, he was a lot whimsier at the time, flimsy, and the the connections between the two cases that he has to work, and then they collide. They're okay. So, mm. well, he, Harry's a bit of an idiot for the whole thing, not realizing these things are related. In the in the terms of Dresden, what I miss in the later series is that he's not a, he's not a detective anymore. And that's but he's what, still trying to write he it wants in a case to be, file but, setting. But yeah, and and that's the issue is he he gives up the practice in like the seventh book essentially. Um, I I think he gave it up when it was blown up changes. in his book. Did yeah, it changes. <laughs> right, but yeah. I mean, also you know when he died, lost his home. The storyline <laughs> diverges from <laughs> him being this Spoilers. hard-boiled gumshoe, and I really yeah, I I miss it that. I like that. The... I feel like we should give up on the high fantasy episode. <laughs> <laughs> I think the biggest problem he has is that he still tries to make it a case files episode. Like every book's still a case file, even though Harry's not an investigator anymore. Well, I guess he still has very discreet issues that he has to deal with in very small amounts of time. Like you get three yeah. days essentially of every book. Terrible. Every. Also, oh, that's. Part of okay. the charm and problem in Dresden Files is that every book is literally the three worst days of Harry's life. Yeah. Right. And then so, you can kind of like, they're discreet. And okay, yeah, this one has a name. That one has a name. Because, you know, they had months between. All right. So I'm going to ask a question because I can. And we're going to round out this episode. So what's the ago. one story that you started you and left behind that you wish you could go back to? Alex, your floating city? Um, maybe. Like, I really like the flying city things. I like... I don't know. I just like that. So I might take the basic idea, take the characters, and then completely undo everything else. Give including us the setting. Like, magic Come systems. On. So what I had was a city... That was flying, and then it, like, isolated itself from the rest of the planet, which caused problems. Like, you know, uh, food sources got a little hectic sometimes. And then um, a crazy person was trying to take over the city, and I have characters in the middle that are trying to stop it. Boy, it's a crazy person. Yeah, it was a crazy person. I had no idea how to make an antagonist for this, so I just, okay, he's crazy. Because... <laughs> I was really not good at that. Um, 
that's and then like I have various stories like okay I don't need to dis- describe why the antagonist is bad because they're monsters. So like I often I can run with that. <laughs> I find myself often when I have stories I know who the antagonist is and what they're doing. Well, but it's not. One but it's not you... until yeah, it's not until a lot of brainstorming and a lot of talking with Alex that I finally figure out why they're that way. I mean, like, obviously political grab for power are constant, but what's making this person want that? Yeah, what does this person want to do with that power? Why are they trying to get to it? What? In... Like, sure, what? everyone wants power, but what's driving this person to be this monstrous in his pursuit of power? Yeah, so I had this person is trying to get power in order to do a crazy religious kill everyone in the city thing because God said so. And then I was going to, like, play with that and my main characters are going to be doing trying to save the city and also maybe I'm going to take control and do something I think we should do for better or for worse. Like, if and, you look at um, Zane in Mistborn 2 Yes. He literally thinks and he actually literally is seeing what he thinks is God. Yeah. He, for very good reason is crazy. Also, like, I don't always give Sanderson a lot of credit for his twists because I feel like he that was a good uh, one. that was a good one but I feel like he kind of you know puts the writing on the wall on page one and reminds you every two pages that this is going to happen but I liked um, Spook was it in book three uh, maybe Spook? Lester Burns the, the, yeah the kid who can't talk right yeah Lester Burns like the whole switch with him being also infected with ruin because of the I don't remember blade. that. Holy shit. Like he thinks he's seeing Kelsier constantly. Oh, yeah, I do. Okay, yeah. yeah that was in book three only. And yeah. he was just having hallucinations of dead friend. <laughs> I just really liked the, the twist he of what pulls... his name meant. Oh. <laughs> but he pulls off that twist really well. And it helps that in book two he set up Zane to remind you of that yeah. fact. But that's where plotting and planning ahead can really help you. And pacing. And yes, and the plotting and the planning, and it's like, yeah, this is the hint that's going to go there, and this is important because of this, even if you can't understand it at the time, and blah, blah, blah. It's cool when, like, a character like Zane exists, and you think, oh, wow, that was a really cool twist. But you don't realize that that twist is actually setting setting itself up for a twist with another main character later on, creating the scenario where it's plausible. So Zane had his issues... And you think that's cool and interesting in its own storyline, but it also set up Spook's whole story. Yeah, I mean, the two different characters had their own stories, even though they're similar in method. The, the character stories are still separate and independent, and they work independently of each other to be good. That's a, a compliment to a narration style, because you only see Zane through Vin, and he comes off as crazy. I mean, he was a point of view character as well, so Did you he have see him through. Okay, yeah, I, forget. I haven't read the second one in a while. Yeah, because but there Spook was like gets his own... things of his family that you like, Oh, okay, okay. And but Spook gets his own entire arc in a book, and you don't realize he's crazy at the time because he's you're in his head, and he doesn't think he's crazy. Zane thought he was. Zane knew he was crazy. And this all became because we were talking about antagonists are hard. Yeah. Well, I mean, it helps when you can create reasons for things. 
yeah, reasons books are, are important. Books are better. <laughs> books are better when they have reasons. And that'll yes. be our next episode. Antagonism um, and I, I reasons to hate people. I think what we should try to people. do is do the second part of this episode. Because before when we did this, we had one complete coherent episode beginning to end of how to write. And this time we had nothing but tangents. I don't know about that one. We never have a complete coherent episode. (laughs) That one was, it was coherent. And we got to the editing part. We'll we'll actually address what to do in the middle because we kind of just said how much we hated the middle. And then moved on. That that would be a really good episode. The middle. And maybe the end. The ends are easy. I don't know how often Begin, people actually get to the ends because they get stuck the in the middle. The ends are usually sad, and the middle is what you have to enjoy. Okay, the next episode will be the middle, and if we make progress on it, the end. If we're going to do the ends, then I'm going to have to just talk about Malzin for an hour straight because his <laughs> books can be three quarters of... Okay, so I'm committed to this book. What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> and then the end is like, holy shit. <laughs> All right, this episode of High Fantasy ended a really long time ago, but now we're going to stop recording soon. (laughs) If you listen to the things we're trying to say and put them all together, you'll get a coherent idea of how to help your writing. Uh, I can't promise any of it will make sense unless you've uh, seen all of the books that we've read. You can find me at brokenjars.xyz. I'm on Twitter at at Jacob Ingalls. You can find us at uh, brokenjars.xyz. .xyz. Right now. I sorry. <laughs> Patreon.com forward slash forward slash broken jar. Sorry. Like I said, I told you earlier. What's I, the Benadryl? I'm, Attack of the Benadryl. I'm on the, the cold med, so I'm doing my best right now. Uh, um, also, if someone wants to make it. Yeah, did, did you want it to do the fun thing now? I was going to say, if someone wants to make a uh, bingo okay. for. Okay, so. If you are listening to this point of this episode, thank you, first off. But second, um, if you put a review on our Google page or our iTunes page for this podcast, you will be opening yourself up to being the recipient of a Scrivener uh, license. And if you don't know what Scrivener is, it is a writing program. We'll get to that when we start talking about sitting down and writing again in the middle. Look up Scrivener. It is entirely worth the money. I have nothing but positives to say about that program. Yeah. So random person chosen if they do yes. a review for so us give... on Google or iTunes, and they will get Scrivener. Yes. It's a $40 value. All people. you got to do is listen to this podcast and put something up, and you might win this great prize it's really good it is i i I started using it let's see my first nano which is when i really got serious about writing was five years ago i used google docs and i realized that it's once you hit fifty thousand words google docs can't load anymore (laughs) and then after winning that there was a 50 percent off scrivener and i'm like okay i'll try it bought it and i can't use anything else it yeah you can Literally, all your ideas, all your characters, all your settings, concepts can all go into one file that is just there, and you can quickly bounce between split screen. It's amazing. Yeah, split screening is great. Take a note, Blue Jeans. (laughs) All right. All right, guys. Thank you for coming out. This has been High Fantasy. (laughs) 
Bye. This is Jacob. Bye. 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 <laughs>